Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, that the kingdom of heaven has come near. We ask that we, as we open your word, that you would prepare our hearts, our minds and our wills, that we might produce fruit in keeping with repentance and faith. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. The season of Advent is a time when we as a church and as Christians remind ourselves that God came to us in humility and grace and that he calls us to come to him in repentance and faith. And just as we expect Jesus to come again in glory at any time, so too did Israel expect the Messiah to come among them at God's appointed time. And without exception, the record of that in every gospel begins with the message of John the Baptist. And John's message was one of preparation. Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And I want to suggest to you that that's a message not only for Israel, who were waiting for a coming Messiah, but for we also who wait for that Messiah to come again. We too need to prepare ourselves for that day, just as John called Israel to prepare. And so I want us to look at John's message and take from it lessons that not only lead us towards Christmas, but lessons that lead us to faith and holiness, and indeed to glory, when Christ shall receive us into his eternal kingdom. How then should we live in the light of Christ's first advent, and in the expectation of his second? Well, John the Baptist helps us to answer that question. And it's not just that John is a helpful introduction to the story of the gospel. John is an essential precursor to the ministry of Jesus and the message of the gospel. In preparation for the coming of the Lord, John starts with a proclamation in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I want you to compare that with Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And there we find exactly the same words on the mouth of Jesus as he commences his public preaching ministry. And it's not just John and Jesus who call for repentance. Throughout the book of Acts, whenever the gospel is preached by the apostles, the one recurring application was repent. And repentance is not just a New Testament idea. It is also the unremitting refrain of the Old Testament and the prophets. And that's where John is coming from. Though we meet him first in the Gospels, he's leaping straight out of the Old Testament. And he's coming to us as a prophet. A prophet of judgment and holiness and ultimacy. He's a prophet foretold by Isaiah as the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Like Elijah, he comes wearing clothes made of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And his diet is one of locusts and wild honey. This is a man on a mission who has no heirs and graces. He's an archetypal Old Testament prophet. And like Moses, he personifies the law, even though he promises grace. And the message of John, like the message of the law, is repent. And he gives a reason for that in verse 2. It's because the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
Now obviously, if the day of God's visitation is about to happen, then turning away from sin and seeking forgiveness and cleansing, that's the smartest thing to do. But we need to understand that when John says that the kingdom of heaven is near, he's not simply saying that God's Messiah is coming and that therefore you need to tidy up your life in preparation for that. But when John and indeed Jesus speak of the coming of the kingdom of heaven, that they're saying, excuse me, they're saying that the whole earth will be reshaped and recreated as a kingdom under God's rule and reign and power. And we need to prepare ourselves for that. It's not that we need to repent so that the kingdom might come. We repent because it is coming, whether we turn around or not. We shall suffer the kingdom's coming, either blessedly on our knees or banefully by turning our backs against God. Therefore, the call of John and Jesus and the gospel to repentance that should prompt every one of us into serious preparation. It certainly prompted many from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. They travelled long distances confessing their sins. John's ministry and proclamation gave them a deep and strong sense of conviction. So much so that far from denying or minimising their sins, well, they openly admitted them. And that's the thing about sin. We can only be free from sin when we face it head on. We disown sin by owning up to sin. Sin is remitted when sin is admitted. As David says in the Psalms, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And thus the law, the message of John, the call to repentance, well, it turns out to be the threshold to the gospel. When we repent, we prepare the way of the Lord, and we turn towards his coming kingdom. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As Peter says to the crowd at Pentecost, repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now we might be tempted to think that repentance is a really good message for the unbeliever, the unrighteous, the world and the nations. And indeed it is. That God commands all people everywhere to repent. That repentance is a message for everyone who still struggles with sin. When Paul confronted the Corinthian church for their sin, he said he was really happy that their sorrow led to repentance, that they'd become sorrowful as God had intended, and so were not harmed by Paul's rebuke. For godly sorrow, well, it brings repentance that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow, well, it only brings death because it's not genuine. Clearly the call to repentance is not just directed to the unbelieving. 
it's also a message to the church. When Jesus addressed the seven churches of Asia, he called upon five of them to repent. And as for John's message of repentance, it wasn't directed primarily to the nations, but rather to the people of God. Those from Jerusalem, Judea, and the region of the Jordan. And those who turned up were not simply the penitent and the remorse, confessing their sins, but also the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the pious righteous and the liberal clergy of their day. These are men who wore religion on their forehead and on the tassels of their garments. These are men for whom religion is their profession and their identity. You'd reckon John would be pleased to see them coming with the throngs, remorseful and confessing their sins. But John clearly was not pleased, and just as clearly that they were not repentant. Rather, they were curious and censorious. So John doesn't greet them as ecclesiastical dignitaries turning up to a family baptism. Rather, he greets them as you would greet a brood of vipers. And he preaches to them something that they do understand. He preaches to them the law. Not because the law saves souls, but because it damns sin. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now as Anglicans, we understand that well. Because every week in our corporate confession, we acknowledge with shame the sins we have committed against God's divine majesty, provoking most justly his wrath and indignation against us. And in doing so, we are reminded that the greatest threat to our faith is not the unrighteous other, but the sinful self. And though such a reminder is hardly flattering, it is cleansing and it is cathartic, because we know that our Heavenly Father has promised forgiveness of sins to all who with hearty repentance and true faith turn to him, and that he shall have mercy upon us, he'll pardon and deliver us from all our sins, he'll confirm and strengthen us in all goodness, and he'll keep us in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that. And though such promises are comforting and reassuring, it should be noted that they're entirely conditional upon what Cranmer calls hearty repentance and true faith. For just as certain as God's promise of forgiveness to the truly repentant and believing is God's promise of judgment to the unrepentant and the unbelieving. Now John doesn't doubt that for a moment. And so he asked the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 7, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And that's the thing about waiting for the coming of God's Messiah. For we know that when he comes, he shall bring with him God's burning justice, no less than God's glorious grace. To think otherwise is naive. A coming kingdom without judgment for evil well, it exists only in the imagination of the sentimental. And though it's demonstrably true that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, it's simply not true that God loves us just as we are. On the contrary, he calls us to repent just as we are and to put to death our earthly natures. For sin is the reason that the wrath of God is coming. And God's wrath 
unlike ours, it's never an expression of his irritability and his grumpiness. Rather, God's wrath is the steady, the patient, but the absolutely fair grace of God in collision with our manifest selfishness. God's wrath does not contradict his love, it proves it. And just as God's wrath is evidence of his love for us, so too is repentance evidence of our love for God. A repentance not merely of regret and worldly sorrow, but a repentance that starts with confession and bears fruit consistent with righteousness. It's not what we think or say or feel that ultimately matters, but what we do in response to God's call. And the need for repentance is universal. Ancestry does not exempt us, neither does religious affiliation or even orthodoxy. You see, no one is born a Christian, and neither is there any such thing as a Christian nation. We have a history and a culture with largely Christian origin and norms, but nobody is a Christian simply by virtue of their nationality, their heritage, or their pedigree. Clearly, many of the Jews thought that being an ancestor of Abraham would automatically make them right with God. A baptism of repentance for the remission of sins was for others, but not for them. But John makes it very clear that being a child of Abraham was not a birthright, it's a gift from God. If God wanted, he could raise up children for Abraham from the stones. And though John doesn't know it yet, God will raise up descendants of Abraham and heirs, according to the promise, not from stones, but from the likes of you and I, from the Gentiles. From all who by faith are in Christ Jesus. And just as ancestry and religious heritage doesn't save the Jews from God's judgment, neither can it save us. As Paul says to the Romans, a Jew is one inwardly, circumcised in the heart by the Spirit of God. None of us can put any confidence in the flesh, no matter what credentials we might have. Though baptised in the eighth month of the people of Australia, of the tribe of Anglicanism, a Christian of Christians, though orthodox in regard to doctrine, as for zeal shunning worldliness, and as for keeping the Ten Commandments faultless, None of that counts in the end. It is as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and being found righteous in him on the basis of faith. And if we look anywhere else or to anyone else for our righteousness, then like the unbelieving Pharisees and Sadducees who didn't produce the fruits of repentance, we should be cut down at the root and thrown into the fire. How we respond to God's law, therefore, is really, really important. We can't suppose that somehow the law will save us, though it teaches us clearly that God is holy and just and righteous. It just as clearly teaches us that we are not. And nor can we suppose that because we are Christians, we're no longer under the curse of the law, that the law has nothing to say to us. For the law not only acts as a guardian to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith, 
the law also continually calls us to repentance and faith. Without the law, we shall feel little need for the gospel. Without knowing our sickness, we will not seek the physician. We need, therefore, to let the law continually do its work of exposing us so that we might continually flee to the gospel, seek its resources and walk in its ways. And when we do flee to the gospel, its message is not conciliatory, as if the law no longer matters, but rather its message confirms the law and affirms it as having been fulfilled perfectly only in Christ Jesus the Lord. And what Christ offers to us was not just the forgiveness of our sins, but also the very thing that John's baptism of repentance could never offer, and that's the Holy Spirit. As John says in verse 11, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this is the same baptism, the same Holy Spirit that God promised in Ezekiel. When he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, I'll make you clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my degrees and be careful to keep my laws. What Jesus does is what the law could never do. The law could never change our hearts. It could condemn our hearts. It could harden our hearts. But it couldn't give us a new heart. A heart that moves us to want to follow God's decrees. A heart that delights to keep his laws. Only a baptism of the Holy Spirit can do that. And for this reason, the gospel is always greater than the law. Though the, gospel, though the law is a necessary precursor to the gospel, the law can never save because it can never change hearts. And though Jesus recognises that there is no prophet greater than John the Baptist, John is just as clear that he's unworthy even to carry the sandals of Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no gospel, there comes no Holy Spirit, there can be no repentance, no forgiveness of sin, and no changed hearts. And though the coming of Jesus guarantees all of those things to those who believe and repent, just as certainly does he guarantee a baptism with fire for those who refuse to repent, for those who refuse to believe the gospel and trust him for their salvation. For when Jesus comes again in glory, he will come not only with his saints in victory, he will also come with a winnowing fork in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. For on that day, our work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. And whatever we have built on Christ, it will survive as gold and silver and costly stones. But the rubbish in our lives, the wood, the hay and the straw, you'll be revealed with fire and burnt up. And though we might suffer loss, yet he will gather us into his barn as wheat, even as one escaping through the flames. 
But for the unrepentant and the unbelieving, they shall burn as chaff in unquenchable fire. As Jesus says to the churches in Asia, he may well say to his churches in Australia, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in with that person and eat with him and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious, and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen.